Hello, my fans, friends. Welcome to the Rich Terring podcast feed, powered by ACAS Plus. Thanks to everyone who's come to see the Can I Have My Ball Back tour so far. It's been going really well. I've got a four-star review in The Standard, four-star review in The Telegraph, who once called me the worst comedy experience of the year, so that's a turnaround. Uh, people have been coming, people have really been enjoying it, and it's getting better and better. The only gigs this week are both in Pocklington, the town I was born in, near York. Uh, there's a couple of tickets left for the evening show and a few more tickets left for the matinee, I think about 4.30. But love to see you there, Yorkshire. Pop along. Check richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs to see if I'm coming near to you. There are tickets left for nearly every show in the tour. I think Norwich has sold out. Uh, and a couple of gigs in London could do with your support as well. Anyway, please listen to the podcast. Do spread the news about the podcast to your friends. Listen as much as you can. Numbers are slightly down, which may affect the future of this podcast. So just leave it playing, even if you're not in the room. Love you. <laughs> now sit back, relax and enjoy whatever it is you're going to listen to. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to yet another Rahulister Book Book Club. My guest this week is the fantastic comedian Ian Stone, who has written uh, an equally fantastic memoir called uh, To Be Someone. Uh, hello, Ian. Hi, Rich. Thanks for having me. No, I love it. Well, we bumped into each other in uh, Edinburgh this year, and I was having a, a very rare date with my wife. Because we, because we, our, our, our timings in Edinburgh, we didn't see much of each other. No. Then you, then you bowled in. I Sat did. Sorry. It, no, Sorry. It was, it was lovely to see you. Um, and uh, yeah, so not, it was, it, you had a good Edinburgh though, didn't you? Uh, we should say you're, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, you've, you've been a stand-up comedian for how long? 30, 31 years, yeah. actually. I had my Edinburgh, uh, I had my anniversary, 14th of August, 1991 in Edinburgh. So uh, uh, it was amazing to go back. I hadn't been there for so long and it was lovely to be back. And uh, and be part of it, and it and yeah, people seem to like the show. So good, yeah, I saw some lovely reviews. I didn't get to see it because I had to look after my stupid children. It's all right, uh, it's all right. and uh, but free fringe as well. You did the was it the free fringe you were doing? And uh... I did the free fringe, and I liked the free fringe. I used to just chat up a hundred people every day in Bristow Square, and they'd come along. And and what's nice about it as well is the delight on their faces after about ten minutes when they sort of look at you like. Oh, you, you really know what you're doing, don't you? <laughs> yes, I do. Yes. And then we had a little, quite a funny chat at the end when I'd tell them, you know, the awkward moment when the Jewish man asked the predominantly Scottish audience for money. And we'd have a bit of fun with that. And uh, it, I really, I loved it. I mean, I'm, it knackered me, but uh, yeah. I, I had a brilliant time and it was lovely to be part of it again. 
you know. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. I mean, uh, so, and, and a lot of the older comedians <laughs> I spoke to, and and myself as well, uh, didn't necessarily have as you know. I think it's I think it's harder as you get older just to relax, but also so many. You know, you got so many memories of that place, but equally, um, you know, there's I. It's hard to accept this these generations of people below you sort of bumping <laughs> you up the top. Wait a minute. You've got a TikTok following of a billion people. Yeah. And that, you know, no, I understand all that, but honestly, the free fringe, you can make your own little fringe yeah. there. Really. It's very much, you, you do it, it. It's all on you. So if it goes wrong, it's down to you, but if it goes well, it's down to you as well. Yeah. And they give you uh, money at the end. It's, it's not the worst <laughs> arrangement in the world. I'll be honest with you. That's terrific. Well, interesting. We'll talk about the way this book was funded later, but the, the, in a way, this this book has a has a uh, a similar um, yes. genesis to it, I suppose. Uh, and um, yeah, well, let's let's talk about it. So the the book is called "To Be Someone," and it's uh, it's a subheading a memoir about one's teenagers one teenager's obsession with the jam. Um, but it's you know it it's not. Although I think it will very much speak to men of our generation. You're a little bit yes. older than me, and we're a little bit more in the thick of punk and. Um, and going to see gigs than I was because I was a little bit too young at the time. Um, but I think it will definitely speak to people of our generation. But I think it's a really because it's, it's it's almost tangentially about the jam. It's more about you. It's more about the 1970s. I think as an historical artifact, it's <laughs> it's really important because it really gives a view into that into a time that some people look back fondly on and you think about it and go that was a pretty ropey and unpleasant time well well i mean when i because i i i um i sell them sometimes after gigs and i say and when i when i tell people about it i say it's part social history part autobiography and part love letter to music in general and yeah. paul weller and the jam in particular yeah. and he, and and those three things are equal weight really because uh, i wanted to tell my story as well uh, and the social history side of things you know the 1970s and uh it was um it was nice to to reach back into that time and sort of really think hard about what it was like. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, but again, I love books that come from uh, an, a perspective that might not usually get uh, get published. Uh, you know, I, I often hark on about Limmy's book and, uh, yeah. uh, the, you know, there's a, there's a few books by more working class voices, shall we say, that I think it's harder to get published generally so it's interesting that this isn't exactly self-published but it's sort of in that area um but equally it's it's brilliantly written Ian as, as thank you, you. well would you'd expect it really if you knew you because you are a fine comedian but we even within the book you're sort of uh, dismissive of your own uh, at least childhood academic progress. Well, because it... I got three O levels uh, <laughs> for anyone under fifty, they're like GCSEs, and I got a CSE grade one in sociology. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we didn't get a lot. I mean, I talk quite a lot about my school life, obviously, because yeah. it the whole thing is is from when I'm thirteen to nineteen, so when the jam were around, basically, and um, my schooling was. Um, adequate i suppose i mean i think would be the best way of describing it and that's not to say there weren't a couple of brilliant teachers but really it was a holding pen the yeah. school it was just to keep us vaguely safe 
for for six seven hours a day so our parents could go to work really <laughs> yes but it's interesting you know i think most comedians in fact nearly all you have to have a certain type of intelligence i think to be a comedian you need to be sharp you need to understand words it's not universally true there are there are some <laughs> terribly thick comedians who don't have very good vocabulary but mostly <laughs> i think most stand-ups because of the because of the nature of it especially of working stand-ups in clubs you you know you have to be sharp and you have sharp to, and, yeah. but you also but you need but there's this is you know if you would be i think a, a, a snobby person might go well i'm i'm surprised to see that someone with three o levels could write such a <laughs> I well put together book, you know. It's the CSE that did it, I'll be honest <laughs> with you. It's the CSE grade one. But no, I think, I mean, in terms of comedians, I think comedians have, have a broad range of knowledge, not that deep, but we know quite a little about quite a lot of things, don't yeah. we, really? And and um, in terms of my academic abilities, um, well, I was, I was a big fan of the West Wing back in the late 90s. I absolutely loved the West Wing. And I think with better schooling and possibly a bit of uh, home tutoring, I might have been Toby Ziegler, you see. I might have right. been, you know, the, the, the Jewish heart of a, of a progressive liberal government, perhaps. But um, things didn't work out that way. But I'm, I'm happy enough with the road travelled, really. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, and, but I got lucky. I got lucky in a number of ways, not least meeting my partner as well. Well, that's true. That's because that I think what's interesting, and again for our generation, is that perhaps for my parents and certainly my grandparents' generation, the kind of thing you and I are doing would. I, I feel my mum's dad, my granddad, who was a self-educated man, left school at fourteen, worked in the building trade and do, doing roads and that sort of thing, but loved opera and loved books and was very funny. And I feel in our generation, and and my 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 mum's mum as well, similarly working class woman who was very bright and. Um, you know, they weren't, they wouldn't have got this opportunity. And I think what's to, that, that we have, admittedly, that we've taken on ourselves to we've say, let, let's, yeah, yeah, to give this thing a go. But it, but I feel like the both things like jam, the jam and, and punk, the punk movement, and also stuff like the young ones and, and that sort of comment and the, and the, exactly. the stand up yeah. movement of the 80s gave us the keys to the door, didn't it? It said, look, this is, this is possible, you know. You don't even be able to, need to be able to play music. You can, you can no. just turn, you can just turn up at a gig and have a crack, you know, as a comedian. So, well, well, that's the, kind of what the, the book's about. The, I mean, I mean, Paul Weller was the first one for me. You know, he he starts writing about police brutality and industrial unrest and political stuff that I'd I'd had little moments of thinking about, but honestly, my as you would have read in the book, that there weren't any books in my house. There wasn't a lot of intellectual chat. I mean, tidbits, if anyone remembers, that would have been the height of the reading in our house. And 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 it's not that we were anti-intellectual. It's just that it wasn't it wasn't for us. You know what no. I mean? So there yeah. was no so so to suddenly hear Paul Weller sing, and then like you say, to see the alternative comics talking, to see Alexi Sale. And I saw him pretty early on, and to see Tony Allen and and uh, and Arnold Brown, and you think, oh yeah, maybe that. I, I still didn't think it was something I could do, but at least you see a, a different way of thinking about things, yeah. really. That and and you go, oh, maybe that's a possibility in some way. Yeah. No. Well, it's it's really it's evocative for that. It's what I think. What's uh, as a as a kid who grew up in in the countryside, and a few, you know, <laughs> like again, a few years after you, I think it's. It's a real eye opener, and I remember feeling like the seventies and eighties. I was scared constantly and of violence, and there was violence <laughs> e even in Cheddar. But well, the, 
But the just amount of the Jew, just add the Jew <laughs> thing to exactly. that, and there was an extra layer that, that there was a possibility of me getting my head kicked in. But yes, the violence was a huge part of it. Yeah, and the, well, and then, and then I think this book really brings home how how terrible the racism was in the seventies. And you know, as much as I'm not saying everything's sorted out now, <laughs> don't we live in a wonderful <laughs> utopia? I know. But, the, but what what I mean, I think you know, there's very shocking things like people standing outside your Jewish school and just making escaping gas noises, you know, gangs Doing of Nazi boys. salutes. Yeah, Nazi, Nazi salutes every lunchtime. Yeah. As I say, as I said, every lunchtime. In the end, it was part of the curriculum. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what have we got today? I've got maths and double anti-Semitism. But it is, of course, it is unbelievably shocking. And that's the weird thing about what, what happened was that we... When when our kids were younger, we we um, they went to a school, uh, quite a nice school in uh, in Hampstead, and um, we got to know some of the other parents. And I remember being at a little a little sort of dinner party we had one night, and I started telling some of these stories, and the looks on their faces, the parents telling them about the, the kids Nazi saluting outside the school gates, and also the stuff about my parents, and. I, I, you know, when you're a comic, this happens sometimes when you're talking and you're very aware of the silence of everyone else just looking at you. And there's a bit of you thinking, oh, please, someone else speak. But obviously, we're also enjoying the attention. But th- that was maybe the, one of the first inklings that maybe there were some stories that might be worth telling and, might, and people might be interested in uh, in hearing. Yeah, well, I absolutely think so. I think it's, you know, not only worth telling, I think sort of really important to get down and get down in this, you know, in this, it's a, it's a very amusing book. And it's a, and it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's not a heavy book in terms of, uh, you know, oh, my awful, terrible life. Even though, <laughs> even though, you know, a lot of things you went through were bad, you, you managed to find the, the funny side of most of it. Yeah. I mean, as you say, your parents, it was, you know, a weird, it's, it's very nice that you're, uh, but it's, it's interesting you're so honest about your parents and in the back you say they're obviously both still alive at the time of writing and you they were say, yeah and say i hope everything's okay and uh sorry you know sorry for being so honest but there's a very funny story about your dad getting arrested which uh, yes which is sort of unbelievable yes my father well the interesting thing about my dad in the book i do call him the most useless adult human I've ever met in my life. And my dad is still around. My mum died just before the, um, uh, the pandemic. My dad is still oh, around. Sorry. And I, no, no. And, and um, I, I spoke to my dad. He read the book and I phoned him up and I said, you read the book? He said, oh, I loved it. He said, I loved it. And I said, what about the bit where I called you the most useless adult human I've ever met in my life? He went, oh, I didn't mind that. He said, because it's true. <laughs> And that will give you a real insight into the character of my dad, who is 90, but essentially still a six-year-old and has yeah. been his entire life. And he got, um, yeah, he got, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Yeah, I do. Uh, he got, um, yeah, he got arrested. My mother, my mother tried to kill herself and that was pretty grim. Um, but then if anyone had to live with my father, they would. <laughs> but um, anyway, my dad, not to be outdone in the drama stakes, um, decided that he, he used to work in the sorting office in uh, Mount Pleasant, the uh, the big post office, uh, sorting office near King's Cross. And he didn't want to go back to work one day. And most people, of course, would phone in, a, uh, would, um, would phone in sick. He phoned in a bomb scare, my father. <laughs> he phoned in a bomb scare. And the whole, the, he basically said there was a suspect package and obviously they couldn't find it in the sorting <laughs> office. <laughs> and and um, uh, later on that evening, a copper turned up at the door and said my father had been arrested. And um, But what I think was very funny, um, 
was that I spoke to him maybe two years ago about it. And I said, I can't believe you got caught the first time you did it. And he said, oh, it wasn't the first time. He <laughs> said, I did it 13 or 14 times. And I wasn't the only one. So anyone out there who didn't get parcels delivered in the late 70s, I can only apologize. That might have been my parents' marital problems. Uh, yeah. And he, yeah, it, he, that's my dad. There's hundreds yeah. of stories about my father. Quite a lot of them are in the book. And um, yeah. he's a well, character. He I is guess. definitely a character. But again, I think quite representative of fathers at that time. And I think, I mean, a lot of the book is, you know, it's about contrasting you now and, and the way the world is now with the way the world was then. But it's sort of interesting that I, it feels a bit more, and not again, not entirely, but our generation of men are attempting at least to be better fathers than, I mean, than, than some of our fathers. My, oh, my, you know. no doubt. No yeah. doubt. The relationship I have with my kids is so different to the relationship that I had with my parents and that my parents had with their parents. It was a different... It, and, and it's more than just a different generation because I don't think the relationship I had with my parents was that different from the relationship my parents had with their parents. Sure. Whereas the way that it is with me and my, my missus and my kids, I'm not saying we're mates, but you know, we yeah. are, we, we, we uh, have a laugh together and we communicate on a similar level. I mean, there yeah. obviously are moments when they just like, Oh dad, shut up. Right? And, <laughs> and I want that from them, to be honest, that's keeping it real. But no, no, no. I, it's, it's completely different from how my parents were with me. Yeah. It's, but it's, you know, I think that as a social document is interesting. You've got uh, sort of, as you're telling the story, you've got these interchapter bits of almost sort of stand up about, about the way that, that, that you know, you've got cartoons drawn by uh, Phil Jupiter's, which are marvellous, aren't they? Phil, really Phil's cartoons are beautiful. He <laughs> said to me, he said to me, the thing about you, Stoney, he says, you're eminently cartoonable. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah, yeah, I can't really deny that that is the case. And the ones in the middle, the, 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 uh, the center of the book yeah. are, are, um, are me and Paul Weller and they're in color and they are perfect representations of, of jam album and singles covers, right. except yeah. I'm in them instead of some of the other members of the band. They are things of beauty. Yeah. And, and what's lovely about it is because I, I spoke to Paul Weller about it. I managed to get him to read it. And he, when I told him about Phil doing the illustrations, he went, oh, Porky, he used to open for us when we were the Star Council. And you think, oh, how wonderful, you know, yeah. that, that link, really. So, no, I essentially the, the idea, and by the way, I should point out at this point, this whole thing was my partner, Rosie's idea. Okay. All of it. She said to me, <laughs> you should write a book about the jam and you should get Phil Jupiter to do the illustration. And I asked him and he said yes. And it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it nice to really collaborate great. in that way. And what was it like? I mean, because you, you're such a fan, you know, as a as a as a teenager, you're following the band around and you're allowed in gigs early and stuff because they recognise you. And yeah. you're obviously like obsessive. Uh, so to get Paul Weller to even read this book, I mean, he gives there's a quote on the front, which, again, I think really does sum the book up. I really like this book. I'd forgotten how shit it was in the 70s, is what Paul Weller said. It was the first thing he said to me. The first thing. he. What happened was, Matt Lucas is a mutual friend of ours. Okay. And I said to Matt, could you get the book to Paul Weller? I know you know him. And he said, yeah. So I got a very early draft of the book, made sure it was nicely bound, found a really nice card in this card shop and wrote a really lovely thing about, I really love what you did and here's something I've written. and. I was getting I was getting texts from Matt in the week after saying, I love your mate's book. I'm going to phone him up. 
And then he phoned me up one morning about half 10. He said, hello, Ian, it's Paul Weller. And I wanted to go, I know, right? Because I've heard your voice a million times, but I just, I was trying to be as insouciant as possible. Like, oh, hey, Paul, how you doing? And that's, and then he said, I really like this book. I'd forgotten how shit it was in the 70s. And I went, can I use that as a quote on the front cover? And he said, yes. And since then, I've had lunch with him. Really? And he's a good guy. I've spoken to him uh, a couple of times. And, and, you know, it's a slightly different relationship because he's talking to me as an artist as opposed to, oh, hey, Paul, love the album. You know, sure. it, I mean, of course, I do love what he does. But, um, yeah, of course, it was a thrill. Of course, yeah. it was a thrill. Of course. I mean, it's amazing that to get that. I mean, and, and you know, and, and and I think it does add an extra a level to it that it's got that approval from the band. But yes. I can understand it because it is, you know, it's and it's a fan. It's a fan thing, but without being, you know. <laughs> Like sometimes a, a fan written a book could, could be a, a different prospect with I, with all the love in the world to people to people who are fans of things. Oh um, no no! It's I'm, yeah. listen. I'm doing this from outside Paul Weller's house, but uh, I'm sure he won't mind. Um, <laughs> no no. I I, I hope. Well, he, he took it in the right way, and yeah. and like I say, like I say, he read it also as a social document, and and that's part of the fun of writing it really to reach back into that time. And, yeah. and, uh, and think about what was going on in the late 70s. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Other comedians might write books and other, other comedians might have gone to a nice public school or, you know, yes. and, and got, a, got a book deal through and, and not experienced what you've experienced. And, you know, I, I'd know you a little bit and I didn't, you know, I, I, I guess I, would have, I wouldn't have. It's, it's weird, isn't it? You don't necessarily, I mean, I don't really go on thinking about class. I, don't, I wouldn't have pegged you as, as, uh, as, as you know, I would have thought you'd been to university, and I would have thought you would um, really, you know, yeah. But that's I, interesting. That's interesting because class is not really talked about that much, and the no. comedy circuit has has class distinctions just like anyone else, and the sure. publishing industry certainly does. Um, and 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 
Yeah, a few people have said to me, it's nice to hear a working class voice tell these stories. Because I think there's also so many comedians who are pretending to be that as well, <laughs> who, who might have gone to a public school and still be, you know, very much, you know, like... I, I, Some I, of them are good friends of ours. Exactly. Well, of course they are. So, but, you know, it's, but it's, so it's, it is, I think it's so important to get that. And that's why, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the way this book was published because i uh paid for this book to be published you did thank you i can't take full credit uh but you know it was that did you try to go through traditional publishers or was it always going to be an un so it's, it's published by unbound which is a it's sort of like a kickstartery uh yeah crowdfunding of, crowdfund, thing, yeah. crowdfunding way of doing it which you know a lot of great books are coming through this uh through this this way but was it was it always going to be kick, no, no. the The plan. I mean, I mean, I I, I got to know my literary agent. I went to a, a, a football dinner with him, um, and uh, we got to know each other. And I, we had the idea, and he told us um, the sort of thing you need to pitch the the idea of five thousand word chapter. You know, why you, why now, all that sort of stuff. And and we sent it to a few publishers, and they all said, yeah, we like the writing and we like it, but it's not really for us. Right. And then we took it to Unbound, and they said, yes, if you can raise the money, which is quite a substantial amount of money, about 15,000 quid to, to publish yeah. it in Heartback, if you can raise that money, um, we will publish the book. Um, now, the one thing about comics is that we all know a lot of people, a lot of comics and a lot of people around the comedy business. So I wrote, um, I'm not, I'm not going to say begging emails because they weren't begging emails, but they were essentially, I'm asking people to pay for the book before it's written. That's what it is. And, and I wrote emails to hundreds and hundreds of people. And most people I think responded in the way that you did. You sort of looked at it and thought, yeah, Stoney, that's something that Stoney could write. And, uh, and so I'll give him some money. And if you get enough people to give you money, you get to publish the book. And uh, it very quickly became apparent that it was going to be something that was going to happen. I mean, that was the interesting thing, actually, after a couple of months of the crowdfunding, when it was creeping towards the total, there was that realization, oh my God, I'm going to have to write this thing. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but that was, yeah, it was nice to know that so many friends of, of mine were behind the project and thought it was a good idea. And, I'd like to think that that when people got the book, they went, oh, yeah, it's nice to be part of that because your name's in the back of it, of course. Yeah. And you but, feel like you're you're part of the whole thing. And, and I, yeah, it's it's been a lovely process, actually. Yeah. I, mean, I think it really, you know, and we look through the names and as a comedian, I recognise like about 50% of these of names course. as people <laughs> within the business somewhere around. And it's, yeah, but that, that in itself is lovely that your peers put so much faith in you. Yes. And you do feel like whatever it was we put in, you know, and there were different levels and you get different things, wouldn't there, as, as there always are with these kind of things. But whatever you put in, you think, well, that's what I'd rather, you know, we I've done crowdfunding for a lot of my internet stuff. And yes. You know, and you go, okay, this is like a democratic way of doing something, especially if you do it more than once, you know, because it's like going, okay, people have to, it's sort of, it's sort of more. It's better because it's people saying, "I've got faith in you, and I want to see this thing, and I'm prepared oh, well, to stop the cash." That's an interesting thing because I am thinking about doing another one, um, but I wasn't sure whether I should go for the crowd run funding route again. But you're actually saying that all those names in the bag <laughs> might actually go. Actually, you did a good job with the last one. Maybe I don't know. I haven't. I'm not totally sure yet. Um, but I, for this particular thing. Like you said, it's a little bit like the Free Fringe in Edinburgh. There's something very egalitarian about it, and and if if people like it, you get to do it again, which is yeah. a nice thing. I so. just think that democracy that and that it is the internet, and this is this is publishing via like 
that sort of, you know, if it's crowdfunded, it's the internet is involved in this. And I just like that, that it's, you know, that if there's enough fans or enough people interested, it's either, you know, could, someone could be a fan of the jam or they could be a fan of you or they could just think yes. I'm, a, I'm a fan of new writers. And given that publishers wouldn't publish this, and I think are deeply wrong for that because I, this is exactly the kind of but they should be, you know, obviously publishers are looking going, we've got to make money back and then we need, we need some, we need to be, does, is, has Ian Stone got enough Twitter followers or enough people knowing who he is? But obviously you exactly do a lot that. of that. But so it's exactly, it is exactly that. So they will go for, a, you know, I understand why they will always publish like a big name comedian, regardless of how good the product is. So they cut, but you would hope that we go, oh, but you know, this, this is, this is a story that hasn't been told by anyone else. And as publishers, we should be publishing yeah, you're, abs- good. <laughs> you're you're right about all of that, but I I think I, I I mean I genuinely this you know when you start out with a project and you have an idea as to what you'd like it to be, it it came out exactly as I hoped it would be, yeah. and, and I, I I'm I don't think that's happened with all the projects I've done, <laughs> and and so. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of the way. I mean, I think I think it looks beautiful. I think the cover. I really am chuffed with it. And yeah. And so, you know, in this particular case, everyone who funded it can go, oh yes. Uh, and publishers obviously would look at it and go, God, maybe we should have had a piece of that. But the publishing industry is a slightly archaic, very slow moving thing. Maybe on my fourth or fifth <laughs> book, maybe they'll be interested. But. It doesn't really matter, does it? That's the point. As long it's as it's a, out there, it does. You know, creating is the important thing. I think with yes. all these things, you know, even if it, even you know, as I, as, you know, people who are writers who have not been able to get published, or you know, a you can self-publish anyway, so you can publish. But it's the, but the important thing is about getting it down there, getting down and getting it out, and being pleased with it yourself. But also, everything you then go on to write will be better as the result of you having written yes. something. So you know, yeah. this is this is a, a fantastic start as a. As I'm presuming a first book, I don't think you've d- done a, a book no. before. No, so it's no, you know, no, 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 first uh, one. And yeah, it is. You know, I think the thing with Unbound is you do you sort of forget you've backed it as a backer because you know it does because writing a book takes a lot longer than putting together a, a <laughs> well, or whatever. Well, so, let me tell you, the number of people who said to me, "Where's my book?" and that really helps the writing process. <laughs> but having a hundred people message you, <laughs> oh does, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I've Anytime. got a couple. I've got a couple. You know, there's a couple. There's one that's a Douglas Adams thing that I've been waiting for. I think at least two or three years for, and that, you know, that can't be a problem with the writing because Douglas Adams is not. No. doing any writing right now. No. <laughs> so someone no. is collating that. I'm very much looking forward to it. So it looks like it's going to be fantastic. And I've, I've also backed Nigel Plainer's uh, new book, which again, you know, he's writing at the moment. I think it's nearly at completion, but obviously it does take a long time. So you have to be prepared for that. But it's um, but it's great to see that there's, you know, I, was, was there an editor involved or was or, or did they just leave I, you up to it? I, no, I'm, Rosie, my partner, was my yeah. editor, really, as she is for most of the work that I do. I mean, Thanks. so I, I essentially I vomited out about 50,000 words. And then she sort of looked at it and went, yeah, that's good. That shit. That's good. But that should be over here. And then I had about 30,000 left. And then I started again from from the inside, if you know what I mean, yeah. and try and sort of open it out. I mean, I, I sort of do the same with stand up, really. And um and the stuff about the seventies, you mentioned those little bits that that sort of has become some stand up, really. Yeah. The seventies stuff. I did that in the some of the uh, some of those bits in the Edinburgh show uh, this summer, um, and it, I wanted to talk about, like I say, I wanted to talk about that that time and all the things that we didn't have, and and um, and it, it sort of seems to work quite well as these little interstitial bits in the no, middle it, of the book. It really does. I mean, you talk about the cartoons. Uh, I mean, your nose is almost a, an extra character. 
You're not almost, <laughs> not almost. <laughs> Alan, Alan Davis, who you know that I'm friends with, I go to football yes. with, said he was that your nose was one of my favorite characters of the book. Um, I did actually, I mean, it's interesting because I, I've had a couple of people who've sort of given me a hug when they've read it because of the <laughs> amount of bullying and, and shit that I took absolutely about my nose over the years and by the way this is in a jewish school by the way it's not like <laughs> it's not like we were short of noses but mine you know and and i and I, uh, there were some upsetting moments i think yeah. in the book and it and it was it was quite hard to write those a little bit but as i enter my seventh decade on earth i'm i'm sort of over it now i think well i think what's interesting is you know i think it's interesting in the book that you are you are you're able to joke about it but that you that you can't hide the hurt that those comments still can have so you know as a stand up obviously it's one of those things that you probably have to address before other people address and sometimes oh. it, sometimes it can be funny but sometimes you know sometimes it is like it's too much. Sometimes it is just the, but but I, but I think also anybody who isn't physically perfect, which is or who doesn't think they're physically perfect, the whole of the stand up circuit, which, which is, <laughs> but it's sort of everyone. Nobody really, you know, everyone I think yeah. has something, right? So you know, yeah. I was short, and my I've got weird little hands, you know, like as a kid, those. <laughs> I've got they're sort of they're the same size as Hermione's from Harry Potter. I found out by putting them. <laughs> so as an adult, it's even worse. But it's. But you know, you you obsess about those things in a way, you know, and and obviously all the stuff I think most sort of at least sort of nerdy men will appreciate is that kind of absolute uselessness with women and the fact that that, that idea that the idea of ever having sex is seems so <laughs> far away from the horizon <laughs> that, that you well. don't that you don't believe it's ever going to happen. So. You know, it's not important, and as an advert, you know, it's not actually important. As a comedian, it's probably actually a rather good thing to have something like that that, that makes people remember you, or there's something you can make jokes about. But it's still, you can still see from this book that it's still and there's a level of upset there, the trauma from childhood, obviously, which, as you say, is is sort of really horrific. Um, but well, it, you, that, you, can, you never quite leave it behind. I think is what I'm saying. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I have obviously, I obviously have been heckled on numerous occasions about my nose. It doesn't happen so much now, actually. I mean, <laughs> okay. I used to address it early on. I know what you're thinking and all that sort of stuff. Whereas no. now I don't, and it doesn't happen so much. I think I'm actually growing into my face a little bit. This is possibly the best it's ever been. I'll be honest <laughs> with you. But. But once in a while, if, you know when you you know when you're going to a gig and you don't feel quite right, and as long as the audience are fine, you'll be fine. But if they're a little bit off, yeah. then things and and I've been called ugly a couple of times uh, on stage, and and I and for whatever reason I felt a little bit vulnerable, and I've essentially been transported back to thirteen years old. Yeah, and and I interesting enough, I tried to tap into that a little bit when I was writing about that stuff because yeah. I thought that. And I, I did find that the most upsetting, just thinking about it from that thirteen-year-old point of view. Um, but when I was, I did the Edinburgh show this summer, and I was talking about the fact that I was called Concord for the entire time I was at secondary school, yeah. to the point where, when the plane crashed, I was sort of happy. <laughs> <laughs> do you say that in the book? That is, you know, but again, that is, you know, again, that I mean, as awful as that is to say, the 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 intention behind it is, you know, this was that bad for me. And you do talk about, you, you have that almost, uh, arc, you know, archetypal comedian story of your, one of your bullies coming to a gig, oh, and, you know, oh. remember me, which is again, such a. Wow. 
it's the shock of meeting to... him, the yeah. shock of him going, remember me, and me thinking, I'll never forget. I can see your face <laughs> in my dreams if I think about that stuff, and getting introduced at that point, and yeah. and it was a it was a shock. He, this is a this is a bloke who made me eat sand. He shoved my head in the sand pit and made me eat sand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is interesting the bullying stuff. I think. You know, one of my kids was bullied at school a little bit and the rage it induced in me was beyond anything I felt in a long time, really. Yeah. I, I genuinely could have gone to the school and pinned that kid up against the wall. I mean, it wouldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't have done, obviously. <laughs> that I would have been arrested or something. But those are the feelings it brought up in me. And that was 40 years after it had happened. So that yeah. stuff doesn't go away. But... Yeah, I maybe maybe writing about it as I think it was cathartic. I, I'm, For sure, uh, I I hope so. Anyway, I'll let you know next time somebody has a go. At me. <laughs> but I think that you know it'd be interesting to hear his story because why? If you were that guy, his memory must have either must be different or he must, you know. And obviously, to go through that, then you know you realize with bullies that they probably had something going on in their life. I also think that all of us probably bullied someone at some point at school and we don't necessarily remember, you know, maybe he doesn't no. even re- even remember, you know, we might have said something to someone or made a joke about someone. I mean, you know, I don't think I ever, I mean, I was not phys- a physical person. I don't think I ever hurt anyone or made people do things they didn't want to do, but I'm sure it, in words, I will have hurt people. Yes. So maybe 40 years later, <laughs> still thinking that little fucker herring, you know, how did, how did he do that? To <laughs> I mean, I remember there's a story about like being spat at, you know, someone spitting in your face. And the first day I went to, from Cubs to Scouts, and this me and Stu ended up writing a sketch about this because we both experienced something <laughs> very similar. And I'd really like Cubs, and it had all been fun. Then we went to Scouts, yeah, and and basically it was just carnage. And they and I think one of the Scouts made one of the other Cubs sit on me and spit in my oh face. Oh my god! And, you know, and I didn't ever go back to Scouts. So we wrote this sketch about Cubs being lovely you, and Scouts being these big. You, know, you never went back. I never went back to Scouts because it was so horrific. Uh, well, but, if I if I'd have had the choice, I wouldn't have gone back to secondary school no, after exactly, all this happened in exactly. the first year. But sadly, I had to go, and yeah. it was, and even still, being bullied at school, it was still preferable to being in my house. So, <laughs> as uh, as you've read, so yeah, um, yeah it, well, if that man can't remember bullying me, I'm, I can fill him in on the details. Yeah, well, like send in, you should send in the book, and <laughs> but you know, I think it is because the minute you read, you know, I think you talked, you mentioned Alan Davis, who was a guest on the on the on the Less Square podcast. And, you know, I think people, you you would have ideas about Alan, and I mean, obviously we both know him of, of old, but if you just read oh, some... the memoir. If, you, if you'd memoir. read, yeah, if you'd read some stories about him, you think, oh, you know, why did he, why did he do that? And why did he do this? Yeah. And maybe, and then you read his book and then you yeah. go, oh, that's why he did this. And it's the most shocking and uh, yeah. but beautifully written, incredible book. Beautifully uh, written. You know, we have already talked about it on the other podcast, or I would have him back on this podcast, but it's... But it's and it absolutely makes sense of everything, and it's the it's you know what's happened to you is not comparable, though still, uh, still that you know we're not there's not a fucking league table of who's had is this worst. top trumps <laughs> is this top trumps for how bad our childhood was? But you know the minute you read that you go oh god you know and and you actually seem to have come through it you know despite it in a very positive way from the book i'd say you know as i'm sure as you say it's cathartic to write it and it's brought up memories to write it and i think it is really good to go back into your past and look at the times that you were bad as well as other people were bad and and think about them and try and you know get some understanding of them but um but you know you you seem to have 
gone through this, you know, unpleasant childhood, both at school and at home, and and still retained <laughs> to this sort yeah. of joy de vivre, which may become, you know, you saw Paul Weller as this older brother figure, and maybe that having that escape from he your was troubles. he was the guy he was he was like he was essentially an older brother to me he was about four or five years older than me and he was the first adult I'd ever heard talking about stuff that I could relate to because the other adults were in my family and they just seemed like I don't know just people from the old country essentially all yeah. aunts and uncles from Poland and Russia with these thick East European accent accents and my parents who were like aliens to me at the time and and uh so to suddenly have someone like Paul Weller also by the way someone who wasn't Jewish as well so yeah. it's it's a uh, it's a uh, again another separate thing for me to to latch on to I was going to say cling on to really because that's what it felt like <laughs> yeah. but I think all kids need that. You're essentially mentoring, isn't it, really? Yeah. And, and I, think, I think he mentored hundreds of thousands of suburban kids through their teenage years. That's certainly how it felt to me. And so to get to know him and for his dad to make me a cup of tea one time, those, those things mean a lot when you're a kid. Yeah, it is, you know, and uh, again, if there's uh, plenty of people in entertainment who weren't as uh, kind to their fans <laughs> as, the, as, the, as the Japanese yes. were, uh, by yeah. again, some degree. But, uh, you know, I think, I think that says, uh, but again, I, you know, me and Stu, when we when we got onto TV and people started writing us letters, we remembered being fans of things as kids and Stu remembered like bands writing back to him. And, you know, I don't think I ever wrote to anyone, but, you know, I knew... For me, I knew important how say someone like Rick Mayer was. I was I was never as much into music, although it's interesting with the jam. We were sort of all my friends were sort of into punk, and so I had to be into punk. And one of my friends was in, into the jam, and we would mock him for being into the jam. Really? Yeah, a little bit. We used to sing. We used to go. He was behind. He used to sit behind me in German, and we used to turn around and go, but 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 like we thought we were hilarious because <laughs> we thought that was. We thought we didn't think that was punk enough. That little bit of town called town called malice, what uh, but, song, but yeah, what a song! And actually, you know, I came round to the jam, though not you know even within this, I, I kind of what's lovely again, and what's lovely about the modern world and the, the, the modern world uh, is yes. if there's a song you're not familiar with, you can just go say, "Hey Siri, play this song." And that that's what it. people have told uh, yeah, me, which yeah. is which is lovely. I know. I I must say, uh, as much as I love comedy, and I do love comedy, and I love watching comedy. Live music is uh, as uh, as well as football, as you know. Live music are, are really that's just something I absolutely love. I was at Glastonbury again this year. I love watching live music, and I and the Jam were the first band I saw yeah. in a venue, and uh, it just blew my tiny little mind. Of course yeah. it did. I was I was ten <laughs> foot away, and there they were playing their tunes. Never really lost that that feeling of wonder that you get from seeing a band live. So yeah. I, and I I find it quite hard. That was the thing I found quite hard, actually, was writing about the feelings about the music. You know, you love a song because you love a song and you love the sound of it. And But that was also the first time I ever listened to lyrics as well. I never yeah. really listened to lyrics before Paul started writing them. And then, um, so, so yeah, that live music thing was a big thing for me. Yeah. My mum wouldn't let me go for a, quite a long time. <laughs> it was day, even though she let me go to Derby and Stoke and Liverpool to watch <laughs> Arsenal play you know, on football specials and all the trouble there. But you go to the West End at night to watch the jam. Apparently it was beyond the pale. Yeah. Well, I was always more interested in in music with great lyrics. And I get, and that is and when you pick some out, but or when you think about the jam, you know, there are those, there's either phrases that you still use or that, you know, that he was, 
So, but when you really look at them, you can, and again, you can Google it and and see definitely what he was saying. When you look at those lyrics, they are, you know, they they're they're proper poetry, and they're and because it's from a young man, it's sort of raw and the anger, the yeah, anger, Rich. You know, yeah. I mean, when he sang, I could, I don't give two fucks about your review. Yeah, I remember him singing it about nineteen. He <laughs> was nineteen when he wrote that. I'm still slightly. Uh, worried about reviews. I'm 59, <laughs> right? He, he, 40 years ago, he couldn't give two fucks. And we, the way he used to spit it out. Yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, uh, it was something I looked up to from, from when I first heard it. Yeah. Well, so I think the book, if you're not familiar with the jam, it doesn't really matter, I don't think, but it will also send you towards the jam and, and make you listen to them. And they are an absolutely fantastic band. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, out, out of all of those things from the seventies <laughs> and eighties, probably still listenable. Where many of them, you know, may have a nostalgic interest in them, but I think I think uh, the jam, the, you know, the, the tunes are so great and the lyrics are, uh, you know, I think young people could get behind the jam still. Yeah. Uh, so yes. it is. It is. I would hope so. Yeah. So and and you know we get we get a little bit of you, uh, which I'm still as a I'm a more of a comedy fan than a music fan. Um, but you know your, your your little dalliances with the the early days or the early ish days of the comedy store, and you know trying out at a gong show at well. four o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. It sounds insane that gigs that gigs <laughs> would terrible. would run all night, and then you would just get up and be pushed onto stage and have at a the go. End, the open spot at the end. <laughs> yeah. I'm introduced, and that and like I say, I was 16. I was a drunk 16 year old in the original comedy store in the strip club in in Beard Street and uh, ended up getting on stage and just and dying so badly and just doing the uh, what was it two lepers walking down the street how are you mustn't crumble <laughs> and Tony Allen I think it was banging the gong going that's enough of that shit and I thought fair enough but what was really funny was Don Ward who was the who was and is the owner of the comedy store remembering me when I went back 10 years later to do a proper open spot yeah uh, so that's you know I, I but I I think Coming back to what we were saying earlier, there was the similar ethos to the start of alternative comedy. So there was to what there was in with the punk uh, yeah. movement as well. So uh, that's, I think, part of what attracted me to it. You know, yeah, no, it's fabulous, and it, you know, and it really. I came to London in you know the early, well, very late eighties, early nineties, really. And uh, you know, there's things that you talk about from London that you know, just the the smelly tramps that you talk about, which <laughs> they're, like they're properly the prop. You know, there, there was an old style of tramp. That you don't, or homeless person, I should say, that you, that you don't well, get, you don't really get anymore. You don't get tramps anymore. The, the That's committed, the point. Yeah, they were, they sort of were tramps, and then you know, and now it's, and now they are homeless people. Yeah. Uh, and it was proper professional <laughs> tramp, full tramps. time, full time. They committed full time to their trampers. They used to sit. I mean, I talked about this. They used to sit outside Camden Town Station, so we'd have to run the gauntlet of the Holloway boys from the, from the rough school up the road, and then we get down to Camden Town, and the tramps would bark at us. They'd make barking noises, and as a thirteen-year-old kid, you just think, "What is going on?" And yeah, you don't get those guys anymore. No. I imagine quite a lot of them died over the years. But uh, uh, no, you don't have people like that now. So I wanted to talk about those times, really, and what it was yeah. like. Camden Camden has still got an, a little element of scuzziness about it, but it's much more of, a, of an entertainment destination now than it used to be. It was oh, a pretty rough course. area. Of course. But even like little details, again, about smelliness of our own, that you know, everyone had a bath a week. <laughs> rather than I remember having, you know, having a. I remember as a kid having a bath a week, and then finally some girl at school saying, "You need to wash your hair more than 
once a week. <laughs> it got really creepy. <laughs> and, you know, me not even understanding that was a possible. But, like, working men just having a bath, you know, working properly, sweating, and, yes. then, and, and bathing once a week. I mean, what a stinky place the 70s must have been. Well, uh, I guess. I guess. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to tell because you only know what you know, you know. And, and obviously with, with my nose, as we've talked about, I would have, you know, if we could put up with it, I guess it wasn't too bad. But, yeah, all that stuff, the toys that we used to play with that were dangerous, the the lack of health and safety, or the, the fact that you could smoke anywhere. Um, I just wanted to explore that a little bit because I, I, I think my kids read it and they both said to me, how much of this is true? I said, it's all true. Yeah. The whole thing is true. And they, they find it hard to believe that life was like that uh, in, in, in uh, the recent, uh, recent memory, really. Yeah. But, and, yeah, but that's, you know, that's why I think it's important because like, all, for all people being upset about racism, which I hope they will can carry on being, yes. I think to, to look back and see where we, where, where it was before and how ingrained in society it was before and how there was, you know, there was no, there was no even where you could go because the the police would be just as racist and the people. Would well, the black and white fuck. minstrels were on the TV. Exactly, the black yeah. and white minstrels were on. T- Sixteen million people used to watch white men black up and sing songs yeah. as minstrels, <laughs> and and it was a very popular show. Yeah. And that was on. And Love Thy Neighbor was on, which was a, if you don't know it, was a sitcom. Uh, where there was basically a racist neighbour next to a black family. I mean, yeah. all that stuff was entertainment, and uh, that's what I grew up with. So that that part of listening to the jam was that political awakening. Um, I mean, the first political thing I ever did was the Rock Against Racism march in 1978, which yeah. is, uh, you know, walking from the centre of town to uh, to Hackney and uh, um, and listening to all that music and. You know that that those those moments I think are really important, and and if you if you turn in the right direction, you've got a chance, haven't you? Really? Yeah. I guess. Well, again, again, you know, I guess it worked to to an extent. It did things did change. I think what's also interesting, you know, the amount of violence you're talking, just people looking, you know, people going to football to fight, people going to gigs to fight. You kind of think, well, if I'm looking around now, all those guys who are sixty or seventy. Most of them, they look all, yeah. they're all, they're all talking about how the, you know, how great things used to be or how awful young people are. But most of them must have been out just smashing each other's heads <laughs> in at the weekend, you know, so, <laughs> or at least, run, that. at least running away from that if they managed to survive it. So, you know, it's, it is interesting to re- to think of that, I think. So for, that's why I hope young people will read this book because I think it gives you a, a window into this really, you know, much more kind of dysfunctional feral. world than we have. I mean, even as crazy feral. as the world, it was it was feral. Look, um, yeah. Ian, I should remember to say this before I forget. Where can we get the the book? Because obviously, you could get it by subscribe, you know, by backing it. But it's still available to it's buy it's now. it's out there. Um, it's in the old bookshop. It's in uh, it's it's obviously on Amazon and the, yeah. the online stuff. And I also and if you come and see me at gigs, I generally have some with me and I sign them and uh, and sell them at the at gigs as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's out there if you'd like to buy it. Yeah, well, I hope people will. Um, I usually ask people uh, if you uh, are, are you reading any uh, good books at the moment. Are, are you a big reader? It's funny actually. I'm reading a book uh, now. You're going to ask me. Uh, who wrote it and I don't know but it's what really it's actually it's a book called what really happened in the 70s but it's quite a heavy in-depth 
It's about the politics of the 70s, so about the unions and Ted Heath and Harold Wilson. Um, I'm reading that, and I've just finished the David Sedaris, the latest diaries, and uh, I love the way he writes. He's very, very funny. Um, Yeah, that's what I've been reading. Uh, And I've got a book about – after that, I've got a David Peace book about Bill Shankly. Because uh, oh, cool, I love yeah. the damned, I love the damned United. I think yeah, it's, it's one of the great, best bits it's... of writing I've ever read, and obviously being into football as well. Um, and then I'm going to read the David Dean book, who was the um, who was the guy who basically got Arsene Wenger to manage Arsenal, yeah. and he's just got a book out. So I want to read about that time as well. I, I used to play Scrabble with his wife. Is that right? Yeah, you used to go she's down very, Totteridge she's, Lane. She's a very good Scrabble player. I, I tried to write a sitcom about Scrabble, and uh, I was going to have her. She had it was her and her mates. These sort of very. I, I don't know how I got involved. It was only for a short period of time. She was very good, but I did. I managed to beat her at Scrabble, and she was very upset. So I got like about five bingos in one. I was pretty good at Scrabble, but she was she was better than me, really. But I yeah. just kind of I, I beat her by about two hundred points because I got about five bingos. But she talked about like they, they were the, all these kind of women of a certain age with maybe who maybe had had a little work done, let's say, and so you couldn't quite ascertain <laughs> how, how old they were. They sort of would right. get, they would get together on yachts and uh, you know and play Scrabble. And one woman got caught cheating, going to the toilet and looking at a dictionary. And no, was, and was but was ostracised from the group. So then she was out of the group as a result. Hey, to walk the plank, yeah, basically. <laughs> so, so did there you was get a, to know these people? Johnny Maitland, who's a oh, German, I know Johnny, yes, and yeah. he got heavily into Scrabble, and then he got you know he started playing all sorts of leagues and things. And so yeah, we end, uh, me and Alistair McGowan. And Johnny Maitland would end up going to play Scrabble with David Dean's wife, who I can't even, I just remembered that she was David Dean's wife, I can't even remember her name, and her equally kind of coiffured, lo- lovely, <laughs> absolutely lovely women. I'm not, uh, I'm not, yes. we, had a, we had a great time, but that's, that's, uh, <laughs> it's a crazy world, isn't it? How things work out. Um, yeah, look, uh, thanks so much for coming on, Ian. It's really great to, I've been thanks, trying to get Mitch. you on the podcast for a while. It's lovely. Good luck with it. You can go see in gigs. You do lots of uh, sports-based broadcasting and podcasting. I do. I, I present a football of a show on TV called The Football's On uh, on BT Sport, which is me and two other comedians talking shit about football for an hour. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> genuinely a dream gig, as you can imagine, Rich. <laughs> I, I mean, imagine. really, if I'd have designed... Well, you can write a book about the jam and get to meet Paul Weller, and then you can do a radio show with Ian Wright, and then you can do a, a TV show where you talk about football. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll have that. That sounds all right. Um, so I do that. Uh, that that's um, I think it's most Wednesdays on BT Sport, and they repeat it. And so I'm doing that, and I'm gigging around. I'm I'm doing yeah. um, gigging, and I'll be back in Edinburgh next year because uh, I enjoyed this one. So. Brilliant. Well, do go and see Ian live. Do listen to all of his stuff, and you know what? And, and think again if you're Somebody wants to be a writer or a comedian or do anything artistic. This, you know, this book is very inspirational because it's, you know, Ian has just gone ahead and done it, and you've got, you know, all these things. You've, the fact that you've got all these dream jobs for you is is absolutely fabulous. So, uh, congratulations, and do carry on as I'm sure you will until we. No, uh, I'm stopping. This is it now. <laughs> No more. No, I'm retiring. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, mate. And I do, will and, carry on. And do write another book as well because it's you're you're an absolutely fabulous writer. Uh, and so that's nice. a, it's do please write another one. And I hope you know it'd be, it'd be nice if a, pr- a proper publisher got not not that I'm bound not proper. It'd be nice if a publisher who paid you in advance uh, got. Wouldn't in touch, that be uh, nice? 
also unbound is i think a fantastic way to get your books uh to the public thank you very much to chris evans sorry for uh, to unbound for calling you not a proper publisher i know you are uh thank you to chris evans for uh his production and directing work in this and thanks to ian stone i'm not sure who we'll be talking to next week because we're recording this one quite a lot of time in advance of uh of the actual release date thank you very much ian see ya 